Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This Advent season, we have been looking at uh, really the, the, the heart of the meaning of Advent, which is a season of waiting. It's a season when we join uh, the people of God uh, who are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, waiting for the coming of Christ, uh, and in which we remember that we are waiting, right? That this world, uh, though we have great hope and comfort in Jesus, that this world is not yet uh, as it should be. Uh, that we're still waiting for the fullness of what God has promised to do and to bring into this world. And so, uh, over the next three sermons, both uh, today and next Sunday and then uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at the long-expected prophet, priest, and king. In Israel, there were these three main roles that God had given to special anointed leadership Uh, for the Old Testament people, the prophets who spoke his word to them, the priests who brought them before God and worship and represented them before God, and then their kings who led them and sought to bring justice and righteousness uh, to the people. And those three kind of uh, framed the hope of one who would come and not be a merely uh, frail and flawed human prophet, priest, and king, but somebody who would perfectly communicate who God is, who would perfectly bring us before the mind and heart of God, and somebody who would perfectly bring in righteousness and justice into the world as a king. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it means uh, to be hoping and waiting for a prophet, and what it means to hear Jesus and to follow Jesus as a prophet. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. This is Moses speaking. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? Uh, When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. This is God's word, it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. There's a, uh, a wonderful essay 
written uh, in the last part of the 19th century by Henry David Thoreau. You might remember Thoreau from uh, history or English class. Thoreau was a great American philosopher of the 1800s. And in the last decade of his life, he had a talk that he gave whenever he would be invited to speak at a university or, uh, or contribute in some way. And uh, it was eventually published in the Atlantic in 1863 under the title, Life Without Principle. It was a bit of a follow-up to Walden that you probably had to read in high school, or at least were supposed to at some point in high school. And he was concerned, Thoreau was, here in the late 1800s, among other things, get this, he was concerned with the role that newspapers were going to play in distracting people from what ultimately matters most in life. The newspaper was a relatively uh, recent invention at that time, so we're kind of living through the demise of a lot of newspapers, but he was, it was the new technology of the time. With the invention of the telegram, news could get from one end of the country to the other. Newspapers in New York could publish what was happening in Ohio and, and all over the country. And he was concerned, deeply concerned, that people were going to become addicted to the news via the daily newspaper that they would become so preoccupied with what happened over here, what happened over there, that they would lose sight of the truly transcendent and meaningful things of their lives, their souls, their neighborhoods, and their neighbors. And so he uh, he wrote uh, in this essay, he says, I believe that the mind can be permanently profaned by the habit of attending to trivial things so that all of our thoughts shall be tinged with triviality. He was worried about newspapers. (laughs) Imagine what his experience would have been like. Somebody who was worried about the presence of daily news from down the road. How concerned he would be with the ever-present news that we have, right? He lived uh, before the nightly news. He lived before cable news. He lived before the internet news. He lived before blogs and YouTube and Twitter and all of the different sources uh, that we are constantly bombarded with. You have more, you can get more news in your pocket right now if you choose to uh, than he likely had access to over the entire span of his life. His essay contains the poignant conclusion Read not the times, read the eternities. Read not the times, the daily goings on around you, but set your mind and your heart on the things that matter most, these things of eternal weight and significance. Read not the times, read not the eternities. And now he was not uh, in any way against People being appraised of what was going on in their lives and in their neighbors' lives, he himself was deeply committed to the abolitionist cause of his time. So he wasn't saying don't attend to what's going on in the world or the things that actually matter, that your life might matter in the direction of, but don't fill your heart and your mind with trivia, with things that ultimately are beyond your ability to do something about them. Don't become distracted from what matters most. I think in our day and age, we need to think of ourselves. You know, we often in church talk about stewardship, right? That we've been entrusted with things that we're stewards of. You're a steward. You're responsible for what you do with your money. You're responsible for what you do with your time. And in our day and age, I think one of the things that we have to learn is that we are stewards of what we do with our attention. 
right? That your attention, where you dedicate your energy and your observation, what you think about and meditate on, you only have so much of that to give, don't you? Right? You might, I can tend to think that I can half check Twitter and half work and half do something else, but no, you've got to, the pie of your attention is fairly limited. And where you entrust it, what you give it to, is ultimately what you give your life to. It's ultimately what you give your best thought and your best energy to. And so we need to learn to steward our attention towards things that matter. You know, uh, there is, in in the Old Testament, there was one person whose role it was to help keep the most important things in front of the attention of God's people. Right, that that was, uh, the ancient Israelites, uh, they lived in a very different world than we do. They didn't have newspapers, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have all of those things. But just as much as we were, they were prone to distraction. Right, to, for, for their eyes to drift away from God and his grace and his covenant with them. For their eyes to drift to other concerns, to the political concerns of their day. The Assyrians over here, the Babylonians over there, their eyes were prone to to follow and to wander off towards other gods. And the role of the prophet was to represent God to the people, to keep God ever present in front of the people's attention, who God is, what God's done for them, and what God says matters most in their lives, what God wants from them in relation to their love, how they love him and worship him, and their love and their obligations towards their neighbors. That in, a, in the world where they were growing increasingly distracted, occasionally even wandering off from their faithful God, he would send prophets towards them to speak his words towards them, to remind them ultimately of what matters most. And so we need a way, don't we, to keep our attention fixated on what matters most, on God and on our neighbor, on who he is and and his claims on our life, to wake up each day and to remember who he is and who he says that we are, a way to live our lives rooted in love and not in outrage, to live our lives grounded in our responsibilities, to love our neighbors, to live life before our God, and not to chase after less trivial things, to keep our focus on who we are and who we're becoming in God. We need to hear the voice of a prophet, to have someone who keeps God before our eyes and his voice in our ears. And Moses, here in Deuteronomy 18, is setting the framework for what that prophetic role in the life of God's people was meant to be like and meant to look like and to sound like. Moses uh, was the, the first prophet in Israel. He was the one who set the job description of what a prophet was supposed to be and to do. And I think this is important because, you know, if if you think about the way that we often think, like if you're just talking to, you know, a person on the street about what is prophecy, what is a prophet, you would probably hear something about predicting the future, right? That a prophet is somebody who knows what's going to happen. A prophet is somebody who tells us what's going to happen. And even as we see in Deuteronomy uh, 18, there was an element of that, right? If he says something's going to come to pass and it doesn't, then he's not a real prophet. But think about what Moses, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, what Moses spent his time doing. He didn't sit around making predictions of the future. 
No, what he did was he spoke from God to the people. And he led the people in the way that God was leading them. Right? He gave them the law, the, the Ten Commandments, the idea, the, uh, the teaching of what it meant for the people to live in relationship with God. When the people veered off of that life-giving way of life with God, he corrected them. He said, look, if you continue to go this way, bad things are going to happen. Right? If you continue to remember when he came down uh, from the mountain and saw the people worshiping the golden calf, right? He spoke God's judgment to them. You're going the wrong way and you're going to be judged. But then he also held out the promise of life. If you live life with this God, the God who led you out of Egypt, the God who's living you to the, uh, delivering you to the promised land. If you live faithfully to him, good things will happen. You'll be blessed. You'll have life. And so that is basically, when you think prophet, think more somebody who reminds God's people of who he is and what he wants from them than, think, than you do thinking about somebody who predicts the future. Now, when other prophets came, whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or Jonah or these others, there was an element of what they did that involved speaking about the future. But the way they spoke about the future was in light of reminding God's people of the consequences of their actions, right? As a parent, sometimes I talk about the future, right? I don't predict the future, but I can say, son, if you don't get down off the roof, you're grounded, right? I'm not, prophes- I'm not predicting the future. I'm saying, look, if you do this, bad things will happen. If you do this, good things will happen. Right? And that's usually what the prophets are doing. If you repent, if you turn from your idolatry, if you treat the poor with justice, then good things will happen. You'll be blessed in the land. You'll return from exile. You'll be rooted and planted. If, however, you continue to wander in disobedience and idolatry and continue to mistreat the poor and the vulnerable, then you'll be kicked out of the land and curses will happen. So the element of of, of prophetic talk about the future is in terms of blessing and warning more than it is about sheer, you know, next week this is going to happen. It's guiding God's people in the way that God would have them to go. And Moses says what God has promised is that he will raise up from the people a prophet like Moses. Notice he doesn't say, I remember Moses is at, the, at the, uh, the very outset of the life of God's people as they set out from Egypt, as they head to the promised land. And what he doesn't say is God's going to raise up a bunch of other prophets, right? He doesn't talk about Jeremiah and Zephaniah and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all the other prophets. He doesn't say there's going to be other prophets after me, although, of course, there would be. He says God is going to bring you a prophet, God is going to bring a prophet from among you that will be like me. And so he sets their hope on a prophet, on one prophet, who's going to come and finally uh, be the one who most clearly reveals God and his ways to the people. And every other prophet that came between Moses and that prophet was just hinting or reflecting what that prophet was going to be like. They were pointing the way ahead towards what the true prophet was going to be like. A prophet like me. The prophet 
serves this mediating role between God and the people. Look at what the, the, uh, the way Moses frames this in uh, verse 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, which relates to a further, an earlier story in Exodus, where God's people said, look, it's too much for us to hear the voice of God. It's too much for us to be in the presence of God. You go up onto the mountain, you hear from him, you take notes, and then you come back and tell us what he, what he said, right? Don't send us up there. You give us the cliff notes, right, of your meeting with God. And the Lord actually said to them, they are right in what they have spoken, right? I, I lo- this, this bit of the story reflects something of the, uh, the ambivalence that humani- humanity feels towards God in the ambivalence that's there in our relation with God, right? Ambivalence, if that's a new word to you, it means to want two things at the same time, right? To be drawn to something and to be repelled from something at the very same time, right? And there is an ambivalence at the heart of humanity when it comes to thinking about God. There's a longing for God, right? We're made. The scriptures tell us that we were born with eternity written into our hearts, that we're born with this longing for transcendence, this longing for more, this longing for communion with God. And yet, at the very same time, there's a part of us that, that wants to keep our distance from God. There's a part of us that's worried about what it might mean for us if we were to truly meet God. Some of that's out of our sin, right? That we have parts of our lives that, that quite, you know, quite honestly, we'd like to keep under our own control. Thank you very much. Right? That there's, part, there's corners of our lives that we don't want exposed to the light of who God is. Some of it has to do with fear of what it really might mean to meet with God and to know God. And the scriptures tell us that there's actually more to it. There's more than just human ambivalence towards God, but that there's actually a real problem between us and God. Right? That it's not just that we want him, but we're also scared of him but that there is the reality of sin, that God longs for us, he longs to embrace us. And yet, he dwells in inapproachable light, that he dwells in pure holiness and righteousness. That our God in himself is a consuming fire, right? That to be in the presence of sin means judgment in light of his holiness. And so, the Old Testament answer was that between this holy God In this unholy people, there had to be mediators, right? These people that, like Moses, that God would say, you go up, or the people would say, you go up, you meet with God, you come back. That there'd be a mediating presence between God and humanity. And these mediators, uh, as we talked about briefly at the beginning, had three roles. There were three main mediators. There was the prophet who spoke from God to the people, kept God before the people, there was the priest who brought the people before God. So if the, if the prophet represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God, right? This idea that the priest would go into God's presence in the temple with their names written on his heart, that he would make sacrifices uh, for the people, not for his own sake, but to keep the people ever before God forgiven and in his presence. And then the king who would represent God's authority, who a good king would lead the people in ways of righteousness and fairness and holiness. And so God gave the people these three mediators, mediating his rule, mediating his grace, and mediating his word. But there was always the idea 
that these people were just placeholders, right? That these people were there until a better solution could be come up with between God and his people. As Moses said, that the Lord would raise up a prophet and a priest and a king for his people. And friends, this is the significance uh, of Christmas, right? This is, this is what Christians celebrate uh, when we celebrate the baby in the manger, right? It's the idea that the mediator has come, right? That in Jesus, we find the perfect bridge, the perfect one to come between God and man. In fact, Jesus has taken it so much, uh, so much this role of the mediator, that not a, he's not a, a mere human being playing the role of mediator, but he is in himself God and man, right? That in his own body, in his own person, in that manger, there's one who in his person is a mediator, that he is heaven and earth come together, divine and human in one person, the marriage of heaven and earth, a perfect mediator between God and man, a perfect prophet, priest, and king. There's this line in in John chapter 6, when Jesus, John 6 is uh, John's narrative of the feeding of the 5,000. And after Jesus uh, and his followers miraculously feed this large crowd, and he's been teaching them all day, one of his disciples says, surely this man is the prophet who was to come, right? Not this man is like Elijah, this man is like Isaiah, he's like one of these other prophets. This is the one. This is the prophet, like Moses told us was gonna come, a prophet like him. Hebrews chapter three, the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us that Christ is greater than Moses, right? That he wasn't just one who was like Moses, but he's one who is greater than Moses. Because while Moses, what Moses said was true, that there'd be one who was born among you, one of your own brothers, this one was also born of heaven, divine and human together. One of us in our flesh, speaking our language, living a human life, and yet so much more, the divine, the second person of the Trinity, there with us. Elsewhere, the author of Hebrews says this. This is Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he upholds the universe, uh, sorry, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's really the paradox at the center of of what we confess at Christmas, right? That the baby in the manger is the one who created the world. That the baby in the manger is the one who we're told upholds the world by the word of his power, which means he not only spoke the world into existence, but he continues to keep it in existence. He holds the stars in the sky and the earth on its axis, right? That 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 one, the one who is the exact image of God's glory, was born in poverty in a manger, a home for livestock, that he is the eternal God and that he has come to speak a more clearly revealing word of who God is to us than any of the prophets. That to, to tell us, to show us, 
to demonstrate for us who God is, what he offers us, what he wants from us. And so what does it mean for us to follow Jesus as our prophet? What does it mean for us to receive Jesus as a prophet and to continue to follow him as a prophet? It means that we look to Jesus. We keep our attention fixed on Jesus to know the way to God, the way of salvation, and to know what God wants from us in our lives. Right? The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a part of our confessional uh, theology as a church, asks this question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? So, right, in what way is Jesus a prophet? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Right? Jesus shows us God's will, God's eternal plan, his way for us to be saved. Right? If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus as a prophet, it means to look to Jesus to answer the most important questions of our lives. To look to Jesus to be the bridge that gets us from this life, as marred as it is by our own doubts and sins and ego and self, and to dwell securely with God, to find forgiveness for everything that's broken and wayward in us, and to find a way that we can know God. Right? To follow Jesus is to follow him all the way to the cross. Right? If heaven and earth meet in the manger, they're finally reconciled on the cross. Right? If they meet in the manger, if that's the place where, where earth and heaven come together, it's there on the cross where that one dies, where the worst of sin and death fall on the shoulders of our mediator, the one who lives and dies for us, to look to the cross, to look to that act of love and self-giving and to say that's who God is, the God who lays down his life for people, for men and women and children like me, so that by believing in him, by trusting in him, I can know God. I can dwell with God. I can live with God. That Jesus shows us the way of God's salvation. He shows us how to, as Thoreau pointed us to, to read the eternities, to set our heart on a pilgrimage towards eternity. Right? To listen to Jesus' voice and, as our prophet means that we turn down we ask him to help us to turn down the volume on other voices that offer us false promises of where to find security and hope and life. There's an image in uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim, the, the hero of the story, sticks his fingers in his ears and block, blocks his ears so that he can follow the one who's leading him on his journey. Right, who said, he says, look, if I'm going to follow on the way to the heavenly city, I'm going to have to stop my ears up. If I'm going to listen to that voice, I'm going to have to turn up the volume on his voice and turn down the volume on other voices that seek to tell me who I am and what matters most and where salvation lies and what really is going to give me what I most need in my life. To follow Jesus on the way of salvation is to bend our ear to hear his voice, 
about the way that he calls us to go. Furthermore, it not only shows us the way to find salvation, he shows us the way to live in that salvation. Right? If you look at what the prophets spend most of their time doing with the Israelites, it's reminding them of their obligations towards God, their responsibility. Look, their, their life with God isn't about their responsibility. It's about God's grace. He's the God who set them free from Egypt, the God of their forefathers, the God who moved towards them in grace and mercy. But he also laid on them the need to live a certain way. I'm the Lord your God who set you free from, uh, from Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Therefore, make no graven image. Therefore, right, all of God's desires for us, we don't earn his love, his affection, his forgiveness, any of that. It's a sheer gift of his grace. But he does call us to live a life of responsive gratitude and love and, uh, and worship towards him. And so the prophets spend about half their time calling Israel to, to remember to worship God, to not grow lax in their worship, to not grow sloppy in their worship, to not start worshiping other gods, right? And they spend about the other half of the time reminding them of God's obligations on them to their love of their neighbor, right? Their obligations to love their neighbors as themselves, their responsibility for the most vulnerable people in their community, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the alien, right? That the God's prophets spend most of their time saying, look, don't forget to love God and love your neighbor. Don't forget that what matters in your life is your love of God and your love of your neighbor. One of the ways that we can begin to not uh, have our lives overtaken by what Thoreau called trivialities is to learn to ask the question, does this help me love God and love my neighbor, or does it not? Is this blog post, Twitter feed, article, news story, Substack article, Instagram, why, I forget them all, right? Is this thing that I've got in front of my eyes, is it helping me to become someone who loves God and loves my neighbor more faithfully, more sacrificially, more actively, Thoreau was worried about the invention of the newspaper and the development of the telegraph wire that sent news from all over the world and to in front of people's eyes. Shortly after, about three years after the development of the telegraph wire, the Associated Press uh, was founded to get news stories from San Francisco to New York, from Chicago to Miami, right, to help news get all over the place. Neil Postman, a great cultural critic and thinker in his uh, classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, says that the telegraph was the beginning of news from nowhere directed at no one. Information from nowhere directed at no one. The beginning of the, how many of our stories, how many of our conversations with one another go, hey, did you hear about blank? Did you hear about who Taylor Swift's dating now? Did you hear about what happened in D.C.? Hey, did you hear about... You know, a lot of people are saying news from nowhere directed at no one. And this, this began, in his mind at least, what he calls the widening of an unsustainable gap in the information and action ratio. 
the information and action ratio, right? We have high degrees of information and a very low responsibility to act on any of it, right? A lot of information in front of us that we have very little intention of doing anything about at any point in our lives. Lots of knowledge about what's going on out there somewhere that we can read and feel like we've done our part with very little conviction to actually put love into practice, right? A widening ratio between information and action. We call this age the information age. And what it's done largely is divorce us where we have ever fuller heads but emptied out from the call to actual action, to actually love our neighbors as ourselves, to sacrifice, to befriend, to care, to serve, to speak. And so to follow Christ as prophet means to let him redirect our attention towards what matters from the ephemeral and the trivial, from everywhere that our own selfishness and sin might take us, to direct us back to what matters most, to our, the love and grace of God shed for us in Jesus, his call to love him and return with our whole hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray that he would lead us there and that we would faithfully follow. Lord Jesus, uh, we confess that there are many, many voices that vie for our attention. There's many visions that cloud our eyes and tempt us. Lord, we don't want our lives to be governed and to be ruled by the just daily spinning news cycle, by the ever-present hum of social media. Lord, we long to live lives that matter. Lives uh, that matter here and now. Lives that matter for our neighbors in our neighborhoods and in our city to live lives that matter eternally, to live lives that speak the truth and grace of your good news, to live lives that invest in what matters and what will outlive us. And so, Lord Jesus, we seek to follow you as your disciples, as people who are looking to you and listening to you and learning from you about how we should live. Lord, we want to, to steward, to, to be responsible for every bit of our lives, our attention and our time and our friendships and our work and our families. We want to lay all of that at your feet. We want to be open to your commands. We want to be obedient. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to tune our ears to hear your voice and your word and by your spirit. Lord, that you would help us to be attentive to go where you lead. And that more and more we would be a people who love as you've commanded. That we love the Lord our God. The God who came as one of us born in a manger. That we would love that God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that more and more we would love our neighbors as we do ourselves. That we would lay down our lives in love for the least, for the hurting, for the lost, for the, the neighbor very close to us in our own homes our neighbors uh, that we've never met. Lord, help us to follow you, to, to hear from you, and to acknowledge you and your word in every part of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.